0: Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew, every aspect of the theatre too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage, babble! Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today we have the second part of my interview with the one and only, the inimitable James Dibus. Okay, so I want to start by asking you about Hello, Dolly! and doing that with Anne Miller and Betty Grable.
1: Wow. Well that was a trip and a half. I mean it, it was terrific. It was a summer tour and um I start we started out with Ann Miller playing uh, uh, Dolly Levi and a wonderful cast. Brian Davies who originated the role of Hero in a funny thing on Broadway played Cornelius and um a fabulous funny man called Mort Marshall played um, Horace Vandergelder and I was Barnaby Tucker and we started out doing it in Indianapolis Indiana and Ann Miller was terrific she was I mean really I've seen a lot of dollies I think she was truly one of the best because she had that kind of get up and go that dolly needs she's Horace, I can just see those muscles rippling under your jacket. Ripple, ripple, ripple. And she was wonderful. And her voice, I I, I don't know if you've ever listened to the uh, cast recording of Sugar Babies, but she has a fantastic, big Broadway belt voice. Really wonderful. She sang the heck out of those songs. And get this, Charles, in the middle of the So Long Deary number, when she sings the lyrics, "So I'll be all dolled up," she ripped off the, her skirt and she went into a tap number. <laughs> dolly did a tap number in this Dolly, and the audience just loved every minute of it. And she was wonderful. I mean, she wasn't 21 years old anymore; she was a, a bit older, uh, but she still could tap like you wouldn't believe. Just really terrific, and and a fun woman. She liked to have a good laugh. She was a Girl from Texas. So she really loved to have a good laugh. And she, while we were doing the show, she got word, you know, you never know when things are going to pop up. She got word that she had been selected to play in the television version of Dames at Sea. So she had to leave. And the um uh, the director brought in Betty Grable, who had done the show before on Broadway, and Betty brought a whole different kind of thing to it. When she said, wow, 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 fellas, look at the old girl now, fellas, Betty would lift her skirts up and show us her beautiful Betty Grable legs that were insured for a million dollars. And I remember when she was coming into the show, we had to, we were doing the show at night with Ann Miller and rehearsing during the day with Betty Grable. And at one point, we were rehearsing in a like a banquet room of the uh, hotel that we were staying in. And it was about noon. We were working on some uh, one of the numbers. And the door to the banquet room opens, and Ann Miller pops her head in. And it's, I'm reminding, it's noon. She's all dolled up. She has blue, blue, blue eyeshadow and her hair is all slick to one side. And she, <laughs> she pops her head in the door and she says, hi, Boo, to Betty, hi, Boo, look at us. We're the Dolly sisters, which was one, he, one of Betty Grable's big films. And they were both wearing polka dots. Uh, Ann Miller had this big full dress on with a kind of a halter top. And uh, she says, well, she's, I have to go now. I have a lunch date. See, great seeing you, boo. She left and Betty Grable looked at me and she said, who was that? And what Halloween party is she going to? (laughs) Because she was so made up and so whatever, but that was Betty's sense of humor. She wasn't, she was a lovely woman and a very generous and kind and fun. She loved a good laugh. She loved a good time. Betty Grable, she was one of the, you know, she was like one of the guys. And uh, I enjoyed so much working for her and what a thrill those movie stars that I saw when I was a kid going to the movies, wanting to be in show business. And now I'm working opposite them. I mean, it was Ginger Rogers, Betty Grable, Ann Miller, Dan Daly, Gene Kelly, all of these people that I had seen in the movies when I was a little boy, I was working with now. It's wow. I just feel so lucky to have had the opportunities that I've had. Yeah. So that's kind of my Hello Dolly Betty Grable story. We toured with Betty for a couple of other places and oh, here's another Betty Grable story. We were in Atlanta at the Fox Theater and she was supposed to do what she thought was a TV commercial, but what they really wanted her to do was to ride in the convertible and wave to people around the streets of Atlanta to bring them in to see Hello Dolly. and She heard about that. She said, I'm not riding around like some beauty queen. She said, here I am all dolled up with nothing to do. So I said, well, how would you like to go to the Fox Theater? It's very historic here. And uh, maybe we can go and see a movie this afternoon. She said, what's playing? And it was the film um, called Ben about the, the rats. <laughs> and she said, I don't know, I, I don't think I can do that. She said, oh, well, I'll go. But when the rats come on, I'm going out into the lobby for popcorn. <laughs> so <laughs> when the rats came on, she did, she got up out of her seat, she walked into the lobby and got a big container of popcorn. And I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody here in Atlanta knows that it's Betty Grable in the lobby of this theater. Munching up popcorn. (laughs) Anyhow, fun stories with wonderful, fun people. So that was it. We toured to a couple of other different cities, but, and had a great time and she got wonderful reviews. The audiences loved her and she was just so charming and just being Betty Grable.
0: I do want to ask you about Jean Kelly Kelly, of whom you were mentioning that
1: you- Oh, wonderful. Jean Kelly. I was set up for an audition to audition for the movie of Hello, Dolly. And Gene Kelly directed it, as you know. And so I met with him the first time at Carnegie Hall in a small little Carnegie Theater on the second floor. And I'll never forget this. When he, he came to meet me from off the, he was from the wings of the stage, he walked down the stairs up the aisle to meet me. I was kind of sitting in the back of the theater with, I had a little valise case with me with my music and things in it. And he came to meet me and I got out of my seat and tripped over my case and fell on the floor. So I was looking up at him saying, oh, hello, Mr. Kelly, so good to meet you. Graceful me, right? (laughs) So anyhow, he put me through my paces and had me do a few dance steps and things like that. And he said, well, I want you to come back and meet with Roger Edens, who will uh, accompany you and I'd like to hear you sing a couple of songs. So I did that and that was the second audition and they finally sent me out to Los Angeles. They sent me out to, and put me up in the uh, Beverly Hills hotel and uh I did a screen test. And it was fun my and my friend Danny Lockin also was up for the part and he got the part. But <laughs> You no, know, it was great because a pal of mine got it. I, I certainly would have loved to have had the role, but it turned out the way it did. Danny was terrific in the film. And um, you know, we were t- it, that's another thing about why you get a part or you don't get a part. It has nothing to do with, I shouldn't say, with your talent many times. It has to do with a look. If you, what your look is like with the rest of the people that they're hiring, and how you fit in that way so Danny was the really the right type and he was a very talented young man so I say was because he has since passed away but uh the movie's always there for all of us to see whenever we can and uh that was my trip to Hollywood to be screen tested by Gene Kelly for the film of Hello Dolly.
0: Wow yeah. So I want to ask you about Pacific Overtures, which was the Broadway show that we left off at. So yes. what was it like to be working with a company of almost entirely Japanese actors, some of whom hadn't done Broadway before?
1: Right, well, it was, it was pretty amazing. I just, every, the thing about it was that the other actors, of course, everybody had to audition to get into the show. So all of those people had to sing and read and do all that stuff. So they were professionals. They weren't just people that they got off the street. They were actors who had done a lot of work, many in Los Angeles, which is kind of the place for an Asian actor to be because there's more roles in films for Asian actors than there are stage productions in New York. So this was just, the perfect place, and it was wonderful to meet Mako and and my friend Sab Shimoner was in it, and uh, a terrific actor named uh, Isao Sato, who was here from Japan, who learned the songs phonetically. I mean, it's just amazing, and uh, and Soon tech Oh, who um, was also in it, a Korean actor, just wonderful, talented men, uh, and and we had just four women who acted as, uh, they moved scenery. They wore all black and moved scenery around. So it was a wonderful experience to be there with those really professional people. And of course, Hal Prince was directing us and Stephen Sondheim was there every day. And we were learning his new music from, from the get-go, from scratch. You know, It was pretty amazing. It was a wonderful experience.
0: So I want to ask you about your big song in that show, which was Someone in a Tree.
1: I was younger then. <laughs> I was. Well, it was it was great. When I first got in the show, I they had me doing uh um, playing the second counselor, and also gave me the role of the French Admiral in a song called Please Hello. And we were out of town in Boston, and soon had the song, Someone in a Tree, to begin with. He had a very fast change to make between that, between his going on to sing Someone in a Tree. It was a very fast change, which was very difficult for him to do. And also, Soon was a wonderful, wonderful actor, but didn't have a lot of musical experience he wasn't a singer he wasn't a trained singer so he was having a a few problems with the music and what have you so one day hal came up to me we were out of town in boston and he said we would like for you to uh take a look at the song someone in a tree and uh, learn it uh and come and audition for steve and myself, and Ruth Mitchell, and Pat Birch, and the whole gang. So I had the music for about mm, three or four days. And I had our 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 pianist in the show, conductor, recorded, I had a tape recorder with me, had it recorded so I could just keep learning and learning and learning and learning. It's a very, it sounds like it's a very simple kind of song, but it's very complicated. There are different key and time changes within the song, and it's about seven minutes long. And it's done with three other people, where we come in and come in and overlap each other and go out. So anyhow, I, I learned the song, and uh, I went up to Steve Sondheim's suite, because that's where I was going to audition for the people. And I go into the into his suite, and he's on the telephone with somebody. And it was like, and all of those Broadway movies that we saw, I mean, movies about putting on a show. The piano had. All kind of cups of coffee on uh, on top, and ashtrays full of cigarettes on top because he smoke, and music and what have you. And he was he says, "I'll be with you in a minute. Just have a seat, Ruth and Hal and Pat and uh, Hugh Wheeler. They're, they're going to come in a minute." So I waited. <laughs> I was nervous as all get out. Let me tell you, there I was, was going to sing for all these people who were sitting just a couple of feet away from me, and. I sang the song and Hal said, thank you. That's what we wanted to hear. Didn't say if I had the song. I mean, if they wanted me to do it, didn't want me to do it. And on my way to the theater, because it was before a matinee that I went to do this audition for them, a couple of the cast members, I passed them on the street and they said, we hear you're going to be doing Someone in a Tree. I said, what? How did you hear, how did you hear this? (laughs) Anyhow, when I got to the theater, Hal asked me, he said, we would like for you to do it. When can you have it in the show? This was a Saturday matinee. I said, well, let's see. It's um, uh, how many bars, uh, this and that and the other thing. How about Wednesday? So that gave me Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It gave me three days to really, really, really know it backwards and forwards inside out. So I could just get out there and really do it. So he said, that's what we were hoping Wednesday. And I said, but I would, I have a request. I said, "Will you please tell SunTech O that I'm doing it and I don't want to be you know, doing feel like I'm doing this behind his back or something like that. I would really like him to know. He said, "No problem. I, I, I sure I can do that." And then I went to Sun Tech's dressing room and and I spoke with him and and uh, you know told him how much I admired the work that he does in the show and all this other kind of stuff. And I understood why this was happening and what have you. And I I, I just hope that I could bring all the wonderful acting beats to the song that he was bringing as an actor. You know. And we shook hands, that was that. I was someone in a tree. (laughs) And it's, uh, I just feel so honored, Charles, and such a privilege to be singing Steve Sondheim's music and the lyrics and to have created that song, you know, it's just a, a big privilege and such a pleasure, of course. So that's my someone in a tree story. There was a a gentleman by the name of um, Stephen Katsakos who wrote uh, for a now defunct magazine called, it was first called um, uh, The Sondheim Review. And then they changed the name of it and, and called it Everything Sondheim. And he called me up on the telephone and asked me if I would do an interview and talk about someone in a tree and all of that. And uh, I did, he printed it, <laughs> there it is. And I'll never forget uh, in the the recording session of it at RCA Records, Thomas Shepherd, fantastic. Just such a brilliant producer. Uh, we did the recording and I did someone in a tree in one take. <laughs> in one take and we got through and I said, "Uh, are you sure? Maybe we should try it again, are you sure? Nope, nope, this is exactly what we wanted. So there it is and there it is for posterity's sake. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Tom (laughs) Shepard. Yeah, so
0: so I, I want to ask you about Pacific Overtures, how audience resp- and critics alike responded to it on tour and on Broadway, because you also did it on tour.
1: Yes, we took it to, we uh, well, on tour, we took it to Los Angeles and to San Francisco, to two cities after we closed the show and did it there. Uh, the New York critics worst about the show. It was just... Boris Aronson's sets, you know, it's it's available, Charles. You can watch the whole production on YouTube. It's there. We, we filmed it for a Japanese company to be shown in Japan. Uh, so it is there to be seen in its entirety on YouTube. But it, it certainly doesn't capture, you know, the difference between watching it on a screen, a little screen, than being there in person to see Boris Aronson's extraordinary scenic design, what he did. Um, um, And the day after the reviews came out, Hal brought us all into the theater. We had a little powwow. And he said, I'll tell you something. The next best thing to having out and out raves are these mixed reviews because people will want to find out for themselves. They'll say, well, some say it's good, some say it's bad, blah blah blah. People will want to find out for themselves, and the word of mouth around town was good as well. So, you know, audiences came and 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 enjoyed the show. I, if I think it was, it was very sophisticated in what it was trying to do, and people didn't really, they weren't sure just because in front of the theater, oh, in front of the theater, on the doors, big glass doors to go into the Winter Garden Theater, they took photographs of six of us and blew them up to life size and pasted them on the doors. And so I think people weren't sure when they passed the theater, like, you know, people who come from out of town to see shows, they weren't sure what it was. They saw all this Japanese, the photographs and what they, they weren't sure what they were seeing. So it we had a little bit of a tough time and it didn't run as long as we all hoped that it would. However, it gets done every now and then.
0: Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit more about your training, which I know we talked about in our first interview. And specifically, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about two teachers that you worked with. I imagine at different points in your career, which is Uda Hagen and Luigi. Mm -hmm
1: hmm Well, uh, Uta Hagen, I mean Miss Hagen, what can I say? She wrote a wonderful book called Respect for Acting. I think it was around 1973. And I got the book, of course, because her exercises are in it and, and her technique, her teaching technique is explained in the book. And I asked her if she would please sign it for me. It is now one of my treasured, treasured objects. She wrote for Jim with admiration and real love. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what more can you ask for? <laughs> but she was an, an amazing, an amazing teacher because she, uh, we had wonderful exercises that kept you in the moment. Uh, um, one was waiting for someone or waiting for a bus or a train or waiting for someone to show up to meet you. So without any props, without any, anything, you just had to stand there and wait. I mean, it sounds easy, but it really keeps you in the moment so that You don't have anything planned because you don't know what's going to happen. So that's one of the exercises, waiting for someone. And another exercise I remember was finding a lost object, like your keys. Has it ever happened to you, Charles, where you forget where you put your keys? Well, it was, I think it was probably keys that was my lost object. However, as the actor, we know where we put the lost object. But the idea of the exercise, of course, is not to anticipate what might happen and to stay in the moment and to really look for it. What, 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 what do you do when you look for a lost object? How do you go about that? So uh, that's what her, her whole technique was staying in the moment staying in the moment and being specific, like my first teacher, Mary Tarsai taught us about the specifics of a role. And and also that acting is really reacting. It's about listening, really listening and taking from what your partner is giving you and then going with the flow with that. And how can you do it every night and every performance there's because you're in the moment and it's a new day. There are new circumstances around you. So even though it's the same lines and you're with the same partner and the same staging, there are little tiny bits of things that change that make you experience it just a little bit differently somehow, sometimes. So that's what Uda was really, really about, about being in the moment and listening to your partner. I just, uh, I am so grateful for the training I had with her. And then of course, I got to meet her husband, Herbert Berghoff, who she recommended that I, they were doing a play written by this woman, Donna Di Matteo, a funny comedy called uh, uh, um, uh, The Paradise Kid. And uh, Herbert was going to direct it. Well, I'd like to to tease him every now and then. And I would call him, I was the only person who called him Herb. And I remember before um, going into rehearsals for the Paradise Kid, I saw a play done, and this was going to be done at the theater that they have connected to the studio there called the HB Playwrights Foundation Theater. It seats about 100 people and it's free for the public. You just have to make a reservation. And they put, do new plays and wonderful things. So I had seen, uh, before our play, I saw Prometheus Bound. And in the play were Uta Hagen and Fritz Weaver and my friend Jill O'Hara, wonderful actors. And I went to see it and I remember the stage was very kind of dark So I remember that I kind of had to squint a bit to see who was on stage. And there were these wonderful actors there. So I said to Herbert one day, and uh, as we started rehearsals, I said, you know, in this scene here, and the play took place in the Bronx, and it was about this kid who wanted to be a cowboy. He was just out of high school and he wanted to be a cowboy. And he wanted for his birthday, what he wanted was a saddle. That was the, he wanted a saddle in his Bronx apartment. So anyhow, I said, you know, I know it's supposed to be evening in the Bronx, Herbert. I said, but, Herbert, but they won't be able to see us. I can, can we put the lights up, two more numbers and uh, blah, blah, blah. So he said, what do you want, Jim? Comedy lighting? Miriam Hopkins used to bring her own gels and she was a rat actress. <laughs> so, so, so the next day I, Remember coming to rehearsal, he was sitting in a chair and, you know, he had a bald head and I walked around the back of the chair. He didn't see that I was coming and I would kiss him on the top of his head. And he would jump a bit. And I had, I found a gel, uh, uh, you know, kind of a pink colored gel. And I said, Herb, I talked to Miriam Hopkins, who was long dead. I talked to Miriam Hopkins long distance, I said, she told me to use this gel and to put it up three numbers. And he said, Jim, you will be the death of me yet. And I said, nothing can kill you, Herb. A mild stroke at most. <laughs> and he said, oh, I know, lo, 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 and he'd grumble and do all this stuff. But he and we enjoyed working with each other. So we got the play on and it was great fun. Uh, Lindsay Ann Krause, Lindsay Krause played my girlfriend, Cookie. My friend, Rosemary DeAngelis, played my mother. Jess Osuna played my father. It it, it was a wonderful experience. And then Herbert asked me to do a couple of other plays at the playwrights uh, unit there. Uh, We did An Evening of Thomas Wolfe. And then I did a one actor called The Drunken Sisters that was uh, written by Thornton Wilder. I played the role of Apollo. And uh, (laughs) Herbert said, you are so athletic, Jim. You are perfect for this part. Perfect. So we got that on and it was my pleasure to be working with both H and B.
0: <laughs> so I want to take a quick detour from your stage career to mm-hmm. add some of the movies and TV that you did, which you've mm-hmm. also done a lot of. So what about movie acting is different from stage acting for you about the process and
1: well, it's more, um, you know, the camera is right there in front of you, so you don't. You've you heard the microphone's right up there. So, uh, film acting is like you're talking to your best friend in the tone of voice that you do, and it's you hardly have to do anything. The slightest move of your eyes tell it all. You just have to trust that if you're thinking it and you're really in the moment and you're really thinking it in your mind, it's going to show. You don't have to quote unquote, act. You don't have to uh, be as big as you are on the stage. Um, And I've had a a couple of wonderful things. I I did a Miami Vice, uh, a a couple of them, as a matter of fact, playing the head of the Department of Internal Affairs, and with um, uh, uh, Don Johnson as Crockett, you know, and I remember a couple of the lines, <laughs> I had some wonderful, wonderful lines, one that I, re- and, you know, there's certain things, again, that just kind of stick in your head and they're, they're there forever. I remember one line that I said to him, you're just a 30 um after all the clothes, cars, and boats are washed away, you're still a thirty-two-five a year flat foot just like the rest of us. And if I see you do anything dirty, I'm going to hold your head under water until you float. That was one of them. And the other line I said was, "Open your palms, Crockett. I'm nailing you to a cross." <laughs> he was tough. He wanted Sonny off of the force. So anyhow, they brought me back uh, another time and I was Lieutenant Stroh a second time and we thought it was going to uh, be a continuing role, which I was kept my fingers crossed for. But then the, the series uh, went off the air and that was it. Those were my two times with Don Johnson on Miami Vice. And then I did a film with Rod Steiger. Wow, Rod Steiger. And also in this film was... Um, Zelda Rubinstein, you know, the little person from Poltergeist? Oh. Zelda Rubinstein and Isaac Hayes and Lauren Hutton. And I played uh, a prisoner by the name of Juan. I'll never forget that audition. My agent called me. Uh, My agent was out of town and his assistant, who was taking over and called me to go to Universal Studios to audition for the part of Juan. Okay, I've played ethnic roles before, but I mean, I'm in Los Angeles now and there are lots of Latino actors, wonderful Latino actors in Los Angeles. So I go into the uh, office, uh, the waiting room of the office, and there is every Latino actor you've ever seen on any television show, tall ones, short ones, big ones, small ones, every kind of Latino actor you have ever seen. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? So I went into the uh, into the audition room and auditioned for the director, Sam Irwin, and uh, Irvin, and uh, they started laughing. <laughs> I did make him kind of funny. They started laughing. So it was a serial comic kind of a film. And uh, I got the part, <laughs> again, again. Now I've said it before and I'll say it again suit up show up and say yes and leave the results to the universe and it was my turn so got the part and I remember working on it I was inside my prison cell and I had an accent as one and as I was reading the part I said wait a minute he's latino and but there are no there are no spanish words in any of his dialogue so, I went over to a friend of mine, and I uh, who she was a, a, a Latina, and I asked her if she would go over this with me and maybe suggest a couple of things that I could throw in. So, it was all about the electric chair, and we're wait, we're on death row, and we're waiting. And we hear at one point like this in a scream. And I threw in, she said, This is where you can say, Ay, Chihuahua, puro chicharron, puro chicharron. And I said, what is chicharron? She says, it's fried pork, you know, the pork rind that you can eat. So I went, I eat your mama, chicharron. And they just, they lost it. So anyhow, it gave me, you know, the opportunity to play a little bit and to thank God the director trusted me and liked what I was, it's, there it is in that film. Uh, the film wasn't a big hit, but you can rent it. It's called Guilty as Charged. You know the electric chair, z- z- z, guilty as charged, <laughs> Rod Steiner. So that's uh, you know the, the the film acting, the things that you get to do, and and uh, the opportunities that you have, and you just go for it. You go with the flow.
0: Yeah. So I want to ask you in general how working with movie stars is different than stage stars. How they tend to be different. There's
1: no different. There's there's no difference at all. They're, they're either real pros and are kind and giving and generous people, or they're not. You, know, you have to deal with human beings. Uh, just And uh, it has been my experience that the bigger they are, the kinder and more generous and giving they are. It's the people who feel insecure or aren't, who aren't very nice sometimes. <coughs> but you deal with it as yeah. best you can. Stay out of the way of an oncoming train.
0: <laughs> so I want to ask you about Sunset Boulevard, which you did next on Broadway. So mm. you came in as a replacement in this show. Since you hadn't done that a lot before, what was the experience of doing that like?
1: It was great because I came in to take over for my friend Harvey Evans and uh, uh, playing Jonesy and a couple of other parts in it. And my big takeaway from being in Sunset Boulevard is Elaine Page. She was fabulous. When I went in, I did it with Betty Buckley, who was fantastic, wonderful. And then Betty left and Elaine Page came in. And she is the gift of Sunset Boulevard because we, for some reason, we just hit it off immediately and we both have the same kind of sense of humor and we would laugh about things and have a a great time with each other on stage and off. And we are and have remained friends ever since. She's a dear friend to me. And uh, I get to visit her every now and then in London. And she comes to New York to do the, uh, she has a radio show on the BBC every Sunday. And uh, she comes in for the Tony Award so she can interview the Tony Award, (coughs) excuse me, the Tony Award winners and what have you. So when she comes to New York, we play in New York. And if I go to London, we play in London. It's great. She is my gift. She is a wonderful gift from sunset boulevard
0: so going back in time a little bit you did Mm -hmm. the show 42nd street on tour for a long time before Uh, but how did you sort of what was it that appealed to you so much about the show that you wanted to do it for
1: so long everything the cast was wonderful you go into the theater you hear that music every night that wonderful music you see those other wonderful performers doing the songs and what have you. I mean, it was a blast. I got hired to do the show in uh, Los Angeles first. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And we opened at the uh, Schubert Theater in Los Angeles, and, um, which is no more, unfortunately, because it was a wonderful house. And the house manager was Florence Henderson's husband, uh, Ira Bernstein. Uh, it was... Just terrific. We had a wonderful cast. Um, and like I said, you go in every night, and, and I play the role of Andy Lee, the choreographer. So I opened the show, and uh, you know, it's the opening, and it's it's the number 42nd Street. It's a big, big tap dance number, and uh before I would Go on the stage I would hear the uh, overture playing I would be in the wings doing push-ups 20 push-ups just to get my strength and my energy going before I would go out there and hit it so you can really give it your all and the curtain would go up and you'd see our dancing feet it would go up the rest of the way and wham there we were uh I loved it I just loved doing it it was great and it kept me in great shape I must say I did go to the gym every other day at least just to keep, make sure that I was had the strength and the energy to do that show. And the uh, broadcast was just wonderful. It was terrific. And then when we closed the Schubert Theater, we were there for about nine months, I think. It was great. I was at home, I was doing what I love to do. I was making a nice weekly salary. Then they asked me if I would go on the road with it on a national tour. And uh, we had a couple of changes, a uh, uh, wonderful, a woman who was in the ensemble by the name of Kathy Widener took over the role of Peggy Sawyer. And uh, Elizabeth Allen, who I did my first Broadway show, Do I Hear a Waltz With? was in the show playing um, uh, uh, the leading lady. And uh, you know there we were traveling. The first place we played was a sit down in San Francisco for five months. So that's the kind of a tour you want to have. And when you go on tour, you get a per diem, you go and stay in wonderful hotels around the country, mostly wonderful hotels around the country, and you get to meet new people because every theater you play, there's a whole new crew and a whole new everything. You find out where the best restaurants are and you see the world, you see the country. It was great. I was on the road for two years with 42nd Street. Wow. We played every every place from just every place around the United States. We, we would go to, you know, you have to be, again, prepared because you go to bring all kinds of clothes. They've allowed us to bring a trunk with us, which the company would ship from place to place for you. So you could pack a lot of things in your trunk and have whatever it is you needed, you know. But 42nd Street was a blast. I loved doing it. I just had a great time.
0: So I want to ask you about working with Lucia Victor, who was Gower Champion's assistant, who directed the show on?
1: Oh, Lucia. Um, Well, you know, she she was up on everything. She had been a production stage manager prior to that. And, uh, you know, she knew the show inside and out because she was one of Gower's uh, production managers and assistants when the show was done on Broadway. his two choreographic assistants were Karen Baker, who has become a really good friend of mine, and uh, uh, Randy Skinner. Uh, so they they did that show all over the world. They put it together. But Lucia was there to uh, just make sure everything ran smoothly. That's, you know, we had a, a stage manager as well, but she was there kind of overseeing everything. That's what she was in charge of doing.
0: Yeah. So the next Broadway show you did was the Scarlet Pimpernel. So what was it like to be able to work with Frank Wildhorn and all the cast? Oh,
1: well, again, you know, I just feel that I've been so lucky because I've I've been able, I've worked with the best of the best, uh, Frank Wildhorn and Douglas Sills and uh, Christine, uh, Christine, uh, not Christine Ebersole, but uh, Christine Andreas. Oh. uh, Oh. my friend Ed Dixon and David Cromwell, who I understudied and play, got to play Robespierre and The Prince of Wales. It was it was amazing. I remember while we were doing the show, Franks Wildhorn had three shows running on Broadway. That hadn't happened to anybody for a long, long time. The Civil War, Jekyll and Hyde, and The Scarlet Pimpernel. And I remember we all went over to where the Civil War was opening and we did a big I don't know, we sang some song or other that the press was there to to see. But, you know, I, I, again, learning things from the very beginning, building a show, watching how the show was put together, watching how people approach playing a role. And uh, it, it, it was a, a wonderful experience. You know? um, Peter Hunt was the director. And... Uh, I had worked for his brother Gordon Hunt in Los Angeles. Gordon was a casting director at the Mark Taper Forum. And he directed me in a musical version of Salome in LA when I first got there. So it was, I had worked with Gordon in LA and Peter here in in New York City. And again, you know, I was cast in that show, I went, an agent did not send me up. I decided one day, I hadn't seen the casting director, Barry Moss, for a, quite a while. And I said, I'm gonna go and up to the office and knock on the door and see if I can just say hello. Well, he knew me from before, so it was like he was gonna say, get, get out of here. I walked in and said, hi, Barry, I just wanted to say hello and let you know that I'm alive and well, and what have you. I didn't even know about Scarlet Pimpernel. And he said, have you been submitted for Pimpernel? I said, no, I haven't. Uh, He said, well, you should be. I said, okay. So he submitted me. I went and did my thing. Now I think I told you that story in the first part of our interview where I had got the role in Victor Victoria and in Scarlet Pimpernel the same day and I had to make a choice. But anyhow, I did make the choice and I'm glad I made the choice because I had a nice long year and a half run with the Scarlet Pimpernel on Broadway. And, you know, the thing that I didn't think about as I was starting out in the business is that every time you do an equity show, you are earning points for your pension. I didn't think about pension. I was a young man. Who thinks about your pension? But hooray for the unions. I'm a union man, let me tell you, because... You're building that pension and the union stands behind you most most of the time. Most of the time. There was an incident when we had a problem with another show, but anyhow, union do union work. I know a lot of young people say, but I can do more work if I work non-union. And I wanna say, yeah, but you're not accruing points for when the time comes, you're not vesting. If you get you vested after 10 years of work not consecutive, but 10 different years of work and actors' equity, you're vested, and your pension starts to kick in after age 62, if you want to, or or you can wait a bit longer if you want. But, you know, thank God for it. I I mean, we really, uh, thank you, Actors' Equity. (laughs) Thank you, Kate Schindel, you know, and the Screen Actors Guild as well, you know. uh, Gabrielle Cadoris and and at SAG, both of those women head up our unions and keep them running. And you know, hooray, unions is what I've got to say. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scarlet Pimpernel was fun to do. We had a, a big, big company. We had a lot of laughs, and and uh, I I was played Jessup the Butler. And then I, I was the executioner at the guillotine where I had to let the guillotine go and it would come down and open what was like a wooden painted watermelon. And what you would see is the inside of the watermelon, they'd hold it up. I can't tell you how many times. My biggest fear in that show is that the damned guillotine would not work, which it didn't do sometimes. And it, it was like, whoa, I would be, get nervous about that damn guillotine. But uh, there was that and, and uh, my Jessup was fun and it was great being there with Frank Wildhorn and Nan Knighton and, you know, Peter Hunt and all of the cast members, wonderful cast. David Cromwell, who I understudied as Robespierre and uh, the Prince of Wales, got to go on several times and he took a week or two vacation and I was on for quite a bit of a run uh, And it was, uh, again, it was another experience, I think, another experience, another thing to add to your resume, another, another opening, another show. (laughs) And you know, between, I wanted to also tell you a bit about between shows all during this time of working on Broadway and working in regional theater and doing this, that, and the other thing, I would do what are called industrials. Have you ever heard about industrial shows?
0: Yes. Yeah, yes.
1: Well, there's a wonderful uh, film, documentary film called Bathtubs Over Broadway, uh, put together by a man named Steve Young. And it's all about the industrials. If you haven't seen it, rent it or watch it or get it however you can. Bathtubs Over Broadway. Uh, I don't, I'm not invested in it, believe me. I'm just, it's a wonderful film to watch. And uh, what industrial shows are, are shows about a product, usually at conventions for the people who work for the company. And uh, I did a great big one for Oldsmobile in 1979, introducing the 1980 cars. And we would do them in wonderful places. I mean, the industrials took you all over the place. I did many in Las Vegas and they put you up in, great hotels and you have room service and I mean, you're treated like royalty when you do them and they're usually shows that have um do takeoffs on familiar songs parodies like um uh for the oldsmobile show i remember singing this I can remember a choice of engines four six and eight we've got a car this year that you're gonna appreciate Ain't misbehaving. We're saving mileage for you. Ooh. <laughs> I mean things like that about Oldsmobile, and then I got to do one for Armstrong Cork. We went out to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They say Lancaster, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, <laughs> to the to the uh, Armstrong plant to do the show for all of the employees there. And do you know who the guest of honor was at this one that I did? Neil Armstrong, the astronaut. Oh. So I got to meet and shake hands and have my picture taken with Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. That's another t- one of my treasures. <laughs> and then he was uh, uh, teaching, he was a professor at uh, the university in Cincinnati. And I, once I got the photograph, I sent it off to him and had it autographed for me. So I have an autographed Neil Armstrong photograph, a treasure along with Uta's book. Yeah. And Steve's, I have an original copy of my Someone in a Tree that Steve sandheim signed for me. So a couple of wonderful treasures yeah. that mean a lot to me.
0: So The Scarlet Pimpernel has been your last Broadway show to date. Mm-hmm. Would, would you like to do another one, or would you have liked to do another one
1: who wouldn't? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to do another Broadway show, of course. And if something comes along, if I get a call to go to an audition for something that is I haven't done before, something that's new and something that I really is a challenge, I'll jump at the opportunity to do that. I've got my audition songs ready. <laughs> and if they send me the sides, I'll learn the sides and I'll go in and give it my best shot. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I'll tell you Charles, this is it's like, where I I, I found that uh, Neil Simon article, that it's, I... it's hard to be an actor, oh. right? By yeah. Neil Simon. And he says, the actor is the bravest soul I know. It's, my God, it's hard to be an actor. I know of no greater act of courage than to walk out on an empty stage, seeing the silhouettes of four ominous figures sitting in the darkened theater with your mouth drying and your fingers trembling, trying to keep the pages in your hand from rattling and trying to focus your eyes on the lines so you don't automatically skip the two most important speeches in the scene. And all the while trying to give a performance worthy of an opening night with only four pages of a play, the rest of which you know nothing about and can only guess at. And then finally get through it only to hear the voice in the darkened theater say, Thank you. You nod politely and start that internal six mile walk off the stage into the wings only to have to walk back on because you left your purse or your galoshes or your envelope with your resumes on a chair in the, on the stage. So that's it. It's, it's um, you know, to put yourself on the line. It's, and also when you think about all the artists, all the actors, singers, dancers, everybody who spend years and years and years studying and training to do what you need to do. All the money spent on all of those years of training. For me, the dance lessons after, my scholar, after I did do the scholarship, the uh, uh, voice lessons, the acting classes, all of that that you have to do year after year after year to keep honing your craft. Because, like that character actor said to me when I first started out, never forget this, my son, chance favors the man prepared. So, you have to keep preparing, keep learning, keep opening yourself up to new ideas and new ways of presenting yourself. I mean, this going through this pandemic now has given people the opportunity to do. Be very creative with things. I'm sure you've seen things, uh, different Zoom things and different webinars and things that are amazing. So you just have to keep kind of reinventing and learning new ways to present yourself and new ways to go out and get the job. Get the job, kid. Get the job. (laughs) And keep learning. And... Last but not least, certainly, I said it before, and I'll say it again, during all of this and during all of the disappointments and sometimes being angry because something doesn't work out or not, it's not happening the way you think, be kind. Be kind to each other and support each other. Support each other. Call each other on the telephone. How did it go today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Be kind and support your your fellow artists.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was really wonderful to be able to talk to you. And thanks so much to every listener for tuning in. And remember to come back next time for Backstage Babble's 50th episode, which we will celebrate with an extended interview with a true Broadway legend. And come back next time to find out who that is. Until then...